This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's guest is Bud Megergy. Bud is a former senior behavioral health care executive a Washington, D.C. healthcare lobbyist and an independently published award-winning author of five unconventional spiritual memoirs. The latest book in his series is titled Soul Afterlife Beyond the Near-Death Experience. Bud, thank you so much for giving me some time today and welcome. Uh, Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, good to be with you this evening. Thank you. All right. In your book, Soul Afterlife, you state that you get your information from a voice beyond. Can you tell us about that voice and and how you got connected with it? Yeah, I think maybe the the best way to do this for your uh, for your listeners is to kind of give you a little backstory, I guess, mm-hmm. or as to why, how do I become involved in a world of souls? Uh, for forty years, uh, my profession has been to run psychiatric hospitals to build psychiatric hospitals, psychiatric healthcare systems. And in the 80s and 90s, most of those programs would brand themselves, for lack of a better term, in terms of being programs that could address the mind, body, and spirit of an individual. So let me just pull that apart for you a little bit. On the mind part, and people can debate me about all this, but on the mind part, there's any one of a number of excellent therapies that help or assist people when they're struggling with emotional or mental challenges. On the body part, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, again, much to some people's dismay, the psychiatric industry developed a whole core of psychotropic medications. Now we can, again, debate whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, But in fact, many of them do help or assist people in terms of taking away some of their suffering as they begin to try to uh, deal with their challenges. The third part, the spirit, and this may be something that maybe some of your audience does or doesn't know. On the spirit side, oftentimes what that entailed was a local minister coming in on Sunday to either minister to some of his congregation or to sit and chat with membership that were in the hospital at the time. Uh, I had a hospital in Dover, Delaware, not that many years ago, maybe a dozen so years ago. And I had an excellent clinical director. And Dr. McGraw came to all of us one day and she says, you know, we can continue to allow this to occur where we have this minister, it was one particular minister, chaplain actually, uh, come in and minister to our population. Uh, But if we do that, we really should have every kind of minister available, depending upon the population we have at the hospital, they give a moment, including rabbis or et cetera, priests or whatever. Equally important, if we do continue to allow this, these people really ought to be trained to do this in this kind of setting. They ought to have some background in spiritual counseling or whatever. Third to that, if Everybody who comes in here and lays hands on our patients are credentialed to do that by the medical staff. So 
So these people would need to be credentialed as well. And finally, if they are integrated with our patient population and there's a treatment plan for that patient, then somehow what they do ought to be integrated into that treatment plan so that the rest of the people who are touching these patients on a daily basis understand what happened on Sunday. Well, that set into motion that just in my mind, after all those years of running these facilities, what, what are we really talking about when we meet with these people and talk about the spirit of the individual? <clears throat> Is it the essence of that individual? Or are we really just talking about the religious uh, connotations that this individual may have, et cetera? Parallel to that, at the time, at that time, my daughter was studying at a Buddhist, a Buddhist monastery in Northern Virginia, and I, I started going to attend with her, really hoping that maybe some of the alternative medicine techniques that these individuals practice would help me better understand how do we begin to deal with the spiritual part of a person. Uh, so there's relaxation, there's breathing, there's progressive relaxation, there's meditation, there's uh, 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 environment, taste, color, smell, visuals, etc. And I'm the kind of person I have, although I am conventional, but yet on an unconventional journey, I have a lot of questions. And the Buddhist abbot at that monastery after a number of months, almost a year and a half of kind of meeting with all of them, came to me one day and he said, you know, you have so many questions about all of this. He said, on occasion, sometimes we have unusual people that we run across or we have to seek out in order to answer some of our questions. And for the first time, Jeff, he introduced a term to me that I had no idea about. He called it neutral Buddhism. And I had never heard of that before. And he said, it's, a, it's the unexpected science and mysticism. It's a time when unexpected science and mysticism are joining together to try to solve the unsolvable problems. Uh, so although I got a great deal of benefit from, uh, from the monastery and meeting with all those people, and there's a quite a bit in this particular book, Life book, about the experiences I've had in the monastery where they didn't do all this. I had a friend that lived in as we call uh, the northeastern corridor of Pennsylvania, which is really the kind of mountainous area of Pennsylvania. Very good friend. And his wife being a, uh, somewhat spiritual, and we were talking about this particular issue one evening. And she said to me, you know, there's an individual up here who people are talking about quite a bit, but it's very difficult to kind of connect to this individual because she really occupies a place in the very rural mountainous regions of, of north uh, uh, eastern Pennsylvania. And I thought to myself, well, we ought to just give it a we ought to give it a try, you know. So I called her. Her name is Charlotte Nama. And I started meeting with Charlotte in part to kind of discuss again this world of souls and the spirituality of the essence of individuals and how that may relate, relate back to the profession I was in. But the intriguing part about Charlotte was she also had studied as a child in a monastery for a number of years. So we talked, that was the, the joining part of our relationship in terms of how we connected. And maybe after about six or eight months of meeting with Charlotte, one evening, 
And most of those conversations, by the way, I never had a reading with her or any of that, but we had these discussions. And one evening she said to me, oh, this is very interesting, but interesting, but you have a, you have a guest tonight. And I said, well, what does that mean? I have a guest. And I had heard about what her skill set was like. And her skill set was apparently, apparently advanced enough to be able to see and talk to spirits, energies, whatever you want to call it in the sun. This, this guest ended up being an energy that was very familiar with me. And over time, I had learned was really my primary guide, I think for lack of a better term. And so that started this journey in terms of trying to find out more about the in that, in that initial part, the world of souls, but eventually leads me to the fifth book that you mentioned earlier, which is called The Afterlife. What your uh, audience may find interesting is that I had, I didn't have too many, I didn't have too many questions that night because I didn't, I was taken aback by it and I didn't know what questions to ask really. And it felt like I was being uh, not tested. I was being gauged that kind of, where is he, meaning me, where is he right now in terms of his development, et cetera. Uh, and I didn't know whether I would go back, and I didn't know if I went back whether I would want to engage in this again. But when I went home, I didn't know what to do. So I Googled, what do you ask a guide when you see them? And it's interesting, kind of, it goes into that, I would say at this point, very elementary stuff, you know, how do I know you? How do you know me? Do you have a name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went back. Eventually, a couple of months later, I went back and we did go through all that. And he was gracious enough to kind of answer all my questions. Uh, but that really wasn't the intention about why he was engaging with me. And uh, so with that, I taped everything for 10 years. And so even if you read the book after life beyond a new death experience, it is written in a narrative format, this question and answers. And I did that intentionally. I wanted to have a co-pilot as I went through this experience. I wanted somebody to be able to understand what the author's journey was really all about, what he was really trying to seek and try to understand. I wanted someone to understand if you do have the opportunity to find an engagement where you can talk to somebody who's, let's say, connected to you, this is what it may be like. Uh, and ultimately, it pans out to be, if you were sitting, Jeff, on a, on a chair, talking to somebody who knew you better than you know yourself, what questions would you ask? Knowing that you would get the most honest answers in return, they would be inescapable. And your price for that would be you coming to grips with your internal honesty and anything you had to share in return. I learned very early on that um, if, and by the way, I'm extraordinarily skeptical, by the way, as an individual. Charlotte knows this, we laugh about it a lot. 
I was up there less than a week ago and we talked about it again, that I always come in very skeptical. I'm always looking around, you know. I've always questioned her talents. I always questioned what was going on. And what was extraordinary for me was the information. We can look at the experience and say the experience is somewhat offbeat, out there, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, it's a matter of, is the information of any value? And if it's of value, how do you sift through those sands to interpret what's of value to you? Yeah. So uh, after a while, uh, that actually the first book that I wrote, which is called uh, Dirt, Truth, Music, and Bungee Chords, uh, is really the first three years of meeting with Charlotte and this energy. It's a, kind of a test run almost. I'm really kind of asking a lot of questions that you would have about your, your life. What's going on with you this, this time? From then on, it became more Socratic. It was student teacher in a lot of ways. Um, and the, the second book was about sin, soul, soul sins, as he described them which were really, from his point of view, the true sins, not man's sins, the true soul sins. The third book was about soul mechanics, the inner workings of a soul. Why aren't we more human warrior-like now when we used to be? The fourth book was about imprints, soul imprints that we're energy beings. And as we move through life, we're leaving our energy everywhere, as is everybody else. And then the fifth book, which was, I guess, the natural progression of that, which was basically kind of my need, was what is it like? Because while at the monastery, and for anybody in your audience that practices Buddhism, and I use the word practice from a literal standpoint, you know, and you're practicing it every day. Uh, there's a, in Theravada uh, Buddhism, there's a term called anatma, which really means that people can uh, Google that if they wish. A-N-A-T-M-A, -A -A -N, anatma. It really means no self, no soul. And Buddhists have a very different philosophy about what a soul is and what afterlife is like and bardos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it troubled me that these people, these monks that I was studying with all, those all that time, had the uh, uh, ability to siphon off the human ego and look at the energy pattern of your existence and how that upon passing, many of them would feel you kind of went into a vat of energy, so to speak. That's my word, not their word. And that something would spring out of that in a reincarnated form. I, my ego struggled deeply with the fact that I would be dissolving into a battle. And so that became part of the, I think the theme behind the F-Life book is that what really happens to the essence of what we understand ourselves to be, does it stay protected, so to speak, as we move through the progression of an afterlife experience? And if not, then what, what exists? Now, one of the first things that this energy said to me, by the way, he, he called himself Laz. I don't know why. 
he later goes on, and he does in this last book, he goes on to say he really has no name, that only we use names, only humans use names, that everything there is vibration and frequency. And that's what he is. Um, he, he actually, it's actually kind of funny. He says, even the names we use here have like a vibrational or musical tone to them. And the example he uses is he used the word pierogies. And he says, now say the word like, like a person from that country would say it. He says, to see how musical it is. And it's musical because it's musically intended to draw you to it, you know? And so, so even the names you have are names that are kind of meant in some way to kind of draw people or keep people away, et cetera. Uh, so uh, one of the first things he says to me, and this is going to be a little bit offbeat, and uh, I certainly welcome questions by anybody as we kind of move through this. The first thing he says to me is, well, Bud, you always do your homework. Uh, he said, but I want you to know that the homework you do, which is off of the NDE kind of experience people has, he says, the near-death experiences really walk the perimeter of an afterlife. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. He says, look at the examples of how people try to gauge where their energy is, where, what would happen to their energy. He says, you have an academic community there that examines everything for what really is consciousness, right? There is a, um, uh, Robert Lawrence Kuhn has an excellent uh, series called Closer to the Truth, where he examines with world-renowned people Really, what is soul, what is afterlife, what is consciousness, etc. But Laz's point was there is an academic piece. So you can certainly go down that path in terms of trying to understand what all this is. He says there's a traditional medical piece of what he called the naturalist, you know, that the answer behind a, a, a near death can really be biologically determined. It's the absence of oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, there's the people that you contacted, Bud, which is the, the uh, uh, Division for Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. Are you familiar with them? Uh, uh, maybe. Doctor, yeah, Dr. Stevenson, Grayson, Tucker, Ray Moody was from there. Right. Wonder, wonderful group of people. Uh, great research, great research into NDEs, past lives, neurological imaging, et cetera, et cetera. Just the amount uh, the, the accumulation of statistical information they've, uh, they've gathered has been phenomenal. Uh, even down to what we started with, you know, how the similarities in NDEs, the differences in NDEs, the massive similarities of what they come back with in terms of how they feel about things, they're more spiritual, they're more less fearful of death, et cetera, et cetera. Good group of people. There's also the psychological hypnotic group of people, the um, Michael Newtons of the world, life after life, you know, uh, for anybody has, in your group that uh, hasn't read it, it's an ex excellent series of books, Destiny of Souls. Uh, he depicts what the world is like there through 
very deep uh, uh, hypnotic analysis where he takes people back to their soul level. Very comforting when you, when you read the story. It's very organized, et cetera, et cetera. There's a literary people. I'm a huge fan of uh, Michael Pollan, wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, Cooked. But his latest book was How to Change Your Mind, which was about the psilocybin experiments coming out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the ones that are currently running right now. And how that, and he participated in it along with uh, Adolf Huxley and uh, Steve Jobs, a number of other people. And he talked about how, what their experience was, it froze their ego. And in doing so, a completely new kind of awareness opened up where they're able to answer unimaginable questions about what everything was about. Uh, there certainly are any one of a number of religious dogmas out there to describe what it is. And that some of the, uh, podcast I was listening that you had earlier this morning uh, uh, went through all that. And then, of course, there's the group that nothing happens. You know, so that was the kind of the, the platform by which I came to this entity, for lack of a better term, uh, and how I was confronted with somebody who knew me better than I know myself. Not only did he know where I wasn't in terms of my spiritual development, it was very clear he had some kind of an idea of what it, what it, what it should be. My family and friends always ask me, this is usually their universal question is, well, they can understand Charlotte uh, because you can put her into any category you want, psychic, medium, oracle, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Laz, I, I was curious about that. And I asked him, I said, can you tell me about this woman that's sitting across from me? And he said, everybody has a psychic ability. It's whether or not they're tapped into that or not. He said, many of you are. Some people have their foot in that water and they're able to uh, read certain kinds of things. And he likened them to if you went to like a psychic fair and somebody was kind of giving readings on the side, he says, they have a, they have a talent, a skill, but it's at that level. He says, other people are in up to their waist and they have much more access to the information on the psychic realm. And uh, uh, he said, they're the kind of people that when you go to a reading, like a group reading and they're able to kind of pick out certain things. And I questioned him, I said, well, look, I have a lot of skepticism about shirt alone. I said, what about those people? What are they really reading? And he said, what he said, when you go into any kind of situation, you are energy and you have a, an energy field around you, an aura as for lack of a better term. He says, and there's all kinds of information under aura. It's like you are a billboard walking into that room. And so they're picking up what's on your billboard, but the depth of it is limited to that billboard. He says, and then there's people like Charlotte, who said are just submerged in the water and they see and hear and, and have much more allergy than that. So that, but my friends and family say, well, what, what is he, right? What is this energy thing? Uh, I don't know, you know, having a kind of a full throated 
uh, spiritual uh, uh, existence with this. The best way for me to describe it is it's kind of that instinct that's kind of in the back of your head that you hear sometimes, you don't hear sometimes. And it's not directed. It's never predictive. It's never negative. Uh, it's, uh, it's like talking to a family member. It's like you, even down to maybe not so much mannerisms, but the way you would examine or approach something. Now, the reason behind that, and one of the things I learned very early on, this particular energy, his teaching style, for lack of a better term, used an awful lot of analogies I mean, throughout. Um, and we can get into some of them if you want over time. And storytelling. Uh, the analogy he liked to use the most, which is the first chapter of this book, is the octopus analogy. Now, he mentions this to me, and my first thought is, oh my God, a sea creature. We're going to talk about a sea creature. Um, but his intention behind it was, I don't know whether you or some other people understand, I've done some research on octopus since then. You know, an, an octopus is a... Uh, very intelligent, one of the most intelligent creatures on the planet, has multiple hearts, multiple brains. It has a brain in each tentacle, a small little mini brain they call it in each tentacle. Here's the way he described, because I asked him very early on when I was in my, uh, I didn't understand how to form a question zone with last. I would ask him things like, uh, how did I come to be? Right? And in essence, he just said, you were, for the last, use your term, but you were birth. You were a spark, he called it. You are a spark of that which created you. He said, as a spark, you are, to the extent that you are a spark, fully loaded with everything of that which birthed you. In other words, you have the capabilities of everything. You, you are not a, the creator, but you have the capabilities of it. He said, when you're born, birth, you smart word, he says, souls tend to gravitate based upon where their vibration and frequency is. And as they have, as they have incarnation and learning experiences, that vibration of frequency changes. Eventually, souls will cluster together. That was his word. They'll cluster together, four, five, six souls in a cluster, same vibration, reasonably same vibration of frequency, and same, let's say interest, that's my word, interest in the intention behind existing, or let's say incarnating. Uh, so that, he says in his analogy, they are the souls that exist in the head of the octopus, okay? Now, you, Jeff, as an example, if I can use you as an example, in the head of the octopus, you decide, uh, and let's say, let me back up a minute. 
before we did this, he asked me a qu one question. He said, in a word, why are you in existence here? And I had no answer because I'm, I'm not prepared for an answer like that. Eventually he says, well, but because of what you do for a living, it gives you kind of a little, little bit of a handle. He says, in, in a way, you, as well as all your mates in the head, the octopus, have an interest in healing. So you're a healer. Uh, but in this incarnation, you've chosen to work with the institutions that heal. Whereas before, you were maybe more hands-on in terms of healing. So we could look at you, Jeff, and say, what is the purpose behind Jeff in this incarnation? Maybe it's a communicator. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a navigator. Maybe it's an explorer. But regardless of what you end up defining it as, those mates that are in the head of your octopus have a similar, not identical, but a similar interest in adventure. So as a healer, and I'm in the head of the octopus, and this is him talking now, he says, and you decide that you're going to drop incarnations. Let's assume, let's assume but that each tentacle is an incarnation. And within those incarnations as a healer, you need to learn everything about it, both the yin and the yang. So as a young soul, you may drop one incarnation and load it with energy as you begin to kind of gather your experiences. As a more advanced soul or, that, or a soul that has had many more incarnations, you may choose to have three, four, five, six incarnations and examine a wide variety of differentiations in terms of what you're trying to learn uh, about that particular issue. Equally so, each of your other mates in their way will drop their appendages to kind of explore as well. So that was the first and it kind of, it didn't, it didn't blow me away because I, I look at it with a, with a skeptical eye and I try to draw the information out of it that I think I find valuable. Does any of that make sense for me? You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, well frankly, learning the up and down of it, so it makes a great deal of sense for me. Because even in a particular incarnation, you may be learning the good and bad of it. Now he goes on to he goes on to explain many more things after that, but that's kind of like the, I think his his high point of it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, that was enough for me. I and mean, I said my first chapter I said, well, this is uh, uh, I didn't know whether, I think I even say, like, I, I think I crossed the Rubicon with this. I don't know whether I opened a can of worms here or what, but I, I wonder where he's going to take me in terms of this particular aspect of the journey. And the way I book uh, each chapter is I kind of give the reader, like, this is what I'm thinking about before I go. This is what happens when I'm there. And here's how confused I am when I'm done. I have a particular close friend who allows me uh, the drive time for me to kind of get to uh, Northeast offensive range is about two and a half hours. So it's two and a half up, two and a half back. After each, each encounter I have is somewhere between two, three or four hours. So there's a lot of tape to go through. 
But after I come out, I, I actually have a headache from the information. And so I'll call my friend and she'll say, well, what did he say this time? And I say, I have no idea. I'm going to have to go home and transcribe this tape because right now my head just hurts because some of the information comes that way. And it comes by way of the learning. It's like it comes this way and around and back to the point because he wants to cover all the aspects of it to make sure I clearly understand. And sometimes I understand, sometimes I don't understand. So at the end of, at the, end of the octopus analogy, I said, well, what will we be talking about next time? And he said, we'll be talking about uh, the seven senses, he called them. No, I've never heard about seven senses. Uh, what, he, what he's referring to is this. He refers to them as the seven senses of love, fear, peace, hate. One he calls the God connection, Kind of wanting to be, wanting to kind of move on as a, as a soul. Uh, the uh, sense of karmic events. And then something you call the overseer. Now, he goes into some detail about all that, what they are. These are all, quote, as he says, senses you experience in a human form to some degree. Um, and it, it made sense to me in this respect. I was listening to some of your podcasts, as I mentioned earlier. I find it, given what he has said to me, I find it interesting and to a degree reassuring that people that go into NDE, oftentimes one of the first things they experience is love or the connection to loved ones. Right. And he says that it is, he says you're an energy being and the energy has memories. And so it would make sense that anybody even approaching an afterlife would begin to attach itself to the memories it understands, right? Mm. Or, the or the dogmatic structure under which they were uh, not so much brought up, but they, that they've experienced, you know? I was very, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but I was very emphatic with him. I said, well, we, there's a lot of people here, and I was Roman Catholic, Altar boy, you know, fully fully clothed, uh, uh, and I said to him, "Well, what about what about people who who believe I will pass, and if I and if I led a good life, I'm going to go to heaven?" And he said, "Then that's exactly where you will go." I said, "Well, how does that relate to where you know this journey you're taking me?" and he said a couple of things. The first thing he said to me is that he said, you have to imagine how different it is in this world than it is looking at from human, a human point of view. Okay. He said, but suppose for a moment that your idea of heaven would be walking with your family on the beach with the breeze blowing. It's the most beautiful day you can imagine. And that's heaven for you. He said, how long do you think you would do that until you became bored? And I said, well, I think there's a number of people that think that that would be the ultimate, that they would want to do it that way. He says, and there, he says, and there are. And those people are forever in that, let's say, slot. So they, they are not advancing. Uh, he says, it's no wonder that they experience that. And that most, he says, if someone believes that they are uh, that they will, as uh, I'm 
partly practicing Buddhist, and I mean, and I mean that literally practicing it, yeah. Uh, he says, if, if you believe that you will, you will walk with Buddha, you will. If you believe you will be with your version of God and Jesus, you will. He said, that's the memory that's attached to the energies you have. And I said, well, speak to me a little bit more about this energy. He said, well, let's do it this way. He says, let's talk about the tunnel that all of you refer to all the time. He said, the tunnel is not a passageway. It's not a doorway. It's not a door. He said, it is your aura spinning at the frequency and vibration that you live. Hmm. And the draw you feel, yeah, and the draw you feel is you are being drawn to the frequency and vibration that you lived in this, in our, in this incarnation. So we talk a lot about that in the book. And he doesn't like my idea of examples because they question too many things. I said, for example, Laz, suppose I have lived at a vibration of a five, okay? And I pass and I am drawn into this five. He says, okay. I said, what happens to me next? He says, well, the first thing that happens, he says, you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself, but the first thing that happens is that you need to go through each of these seven senses, right? Relative to the way you lived your life and reconcile what went on in each of those. The fear he said, isn't like fear of something's gonna to happen to me. The fear is, I don't understand what's going on. I wanna to go to a place that I feel more comfortable. And he said, many people who experience that come to this realm again, because it's comfortable, right? Not physically, but they relate back to this realm. He says, the peace is uh, wanting to feel the sense of comfort. I was listening to one of your podcasts and she talked about how peaceful she felt, you know, this overwhelming kind of peace kind of thing. Uh, he said, hate is not, he says, that's not, that's not the good part of a soul. He says, but every soul has it because of the experiences you've had. He says, you may not act on it, but you, know, you have some resentment. Sometimes you want to get even. He says, and he says, the need to resolve that's important because as a soul, you have the power to get even. He says, uh, the God connection is wanting to, I understand what my afterlife is now. I want to move, I want to, uh, uh, I want to transcend. I want to move beyond where I am. What's the next thing for me? The karmic events is the what you and I would term the review. Right? And it gets in throughout the book, he'll get into minute detail about it, even down to reviewing all the thoughts we've ever had or all the thoughts people have had about us, which frankly just freaks me out, you know, to think that. I would be experiencing some of the stuff people have thought about the over the years. The seventh sense is the overseer. The overseer is the controller. That part of you has the responsibility of pulling all six of these other back together, resolving everything and kind of bringing all the energy back as a whole. Well, that was one of those drives home where I had the headache, you know, trying to explain to my friend, I, I, I have no idea how to understand any of this. And I've never heard any about it. 
But I did ask him, I said, well, what's next? I can barely understand the octopus. I'm completely confused with seven senses. He says, we're going to talk about the seven heavens and seven hells. I have a, an excellent friend. He's a, 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 I want to say older, but I'm getting older. He's an older Buddhist monk that has a small little, uh, uh, a sequestered group of monks that live in central Pennsylvania. Kenshin is his name. I won't give, that's not his real name. Kenshin is a Buddhist term for teacher. I called Kenshin and I said, I want to be able to, I want to come and talk with him. And Kenshin, he tolerates me a little bit. He says, I know you have questions, but what are the questions this time? I said, I'm going to have this exchange and it's about heaven and hell. And he said, well, come on up and we'll, we'll talk. And he was gracious enough that I don't know if any of listeners have, have studied or visited monasteries that Kenshin's time is very precious. So he agreed to meet with me right before his, during his morning tea. Jeff, morning tea at the monastery is four o'clock in the morning. Mm. So you can imagine what I'm like running into the monastery at four o'clock in the morning. And the Buddhists are interesting. And, and Laz gets into them a little bit later because of the, uh, the quietness of them, the concentration of them, the awareness, the, uh, uh, it's, the term is brilliant sanity. It's their completely natural state of being just together one with everything. So I had to kind of navigate around that with Kenshin. And while he was sipping his tea, he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket. And he said, but I know why you're here. I'd like to read you a story. If you don't mind, it may help you understand you know, where you need to go with all this. This because, but you're the kind of guy you need maps and GPS and counselors to find your way. He says, so maybe this will help you with that. And he tells me a story. It's an old Buddhist story about a samurai warrior who goes to a, uh, a senior monk who's meditating and he's kind of rough around the edges. And he tells the Buddhist monk, he says, I want to learn about heaven and hell. And a monk looks up, he's sitting, and monk looks up and he says, I'm not going to tell you anything. You're a worm. You're disgusting. Get out of my sight. The samurai draws his sword, goes to behead the monk, and the monk looks up, looks up at him and says, that's hell. And immediately the samurai drops his sword and bends his knee and he says, uh, Master, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I didn't know what got into me. And he looks at, he looks at the samurai and he says, and that's heaven. And his point being that we experience heaven and hell from a Buddhist standpoint every day. It's just part of the existence that we have. So I left that evening or that morning and I said, you know, I, I, I'm sure my people back home are going to think that I'm just bewildered by all this because I don't know, I don't know whether Kenshin helped me or hurt me with all that. Because I'm about to walk into this whole thing about heaven and hell and uh, I don't really understand what's going to occur. Well, here's what occurred. and try to frame this correctly so that we don't spend a whole night doing it. But the seven senses relate to each of the seven chakras of the human energy. So, if, and it starts with your base chakra, which is your root chakra. 
So as a soul that's passed, you become more oriented. Many of the things you hear people talk about in NDEs is accurate. They become more aware, sights, sounds, noise, beauty, flowers, colors they've never seen before, all that's accurate. Once they are become aware that there may be more, they move to this level. And so within the root chakra, each of those senses is resolved. Making sense so far? So within root, we, we examine the love, the fear, the hate, the etc. Only then, once all that's resolved for you, do you move on to the next chakra. Next chakra is creation. How did you handle creation while you were here? You know, did you understand it? Did you take it for granted? Laz once said to me, it's one of the more bizarre moments. I was trimming my trees. He said, because I thought they would fall in my house. He said, how would you feel? How, how would you feel if people start cutting off your fingers? His point wasn't don't cut the tree, uh, don't cut the limbs off. His point was, do you understand what you're doing? Are you aware of that fact? You know, it's some, a lot like your, some of your early Native Americans would give homage to what they killed, right? Very similar. After that, it's, uh, the next chakra would be your belief. You know, what did you believe about everything that's available to you? Do you understand, as an example, do you understand the benefit of water for you? Do you understand you are water, the connection with all the elements? Do you understand all that? Do you believe it or do you, are you simply kind of moving through with your emotions in terms of entertaining all of this? Next is your heart chakra, your love. How did you handle love? Did you accept it? Did you reject it? Did you cherish it? Did you abuse it, et cetera, et cetera. So each of these senses is resolved in each of them. And you do not move on, it's his mind. This is what he said, until that's resolved. And then your thorics, you know, words have power. How did you use them? Did you use them to help people? He says, you know, words have taken down people, taken down countries, taken down walls. Uh, after that is your forehead, your awareness. What, what have you been aware of? And then finally, your head chakra, your knowledge. After that, seven senses, seven health. Then from his point of view, your energy is now cleansed and you can go back to the head of the octopus. I said, do you go back there immediately? He says, he says, you have to understand this concept. He said, that of which you were born split itself to allow you to become a spark, right? You also have the capacity to split, not unlike the source that gave you that. He says, so when you exit, I, I use the word pass. He says, I find you're using the word pass interesting. What, what have you passed? Did you, did you pass? You know, uh, he says, the first thing that you, the first thing that happens to you when you leave after you've, after you're dead, dead, there is no coming back. He says, the first thing that happens is your energy splits. 
and it splits into these areas. After you go through all these areas, because you get, you know, it's hard to explain because their concept of time and space and all that's radically different from us. It has not, you know, the, we'll probably drive our physics professors crazy trying to understand what he's trying to explain. Uh, so it's not like, and here's the problem I had, Jeff. I, try, I listened to everything he was saying through my ego, as I understand physically me doing it. And he's saying, you're more than your ego. He said, listen to your Buddhist brothers. You're far more than you can possibly imagine you are. And absent your ego, you become more aware of that. So if I would look at it through that lens, then I'm split and I'm going through these seven layers and seven you know, kind of simultaneously. It's not like I go, it's not the step by step by step by step, Bud McGorgie, Bud McGorgie, Bud McGorgie. Uh, but once you get through it all, uh, then you return to the heavy octopus. I said, well, what happens at the, if, you're, if you're good enough to return to the heavy octopus, what happens? He says, then you can consider whether you want to rest. He says, because many of you have been through multiple incarnations, in other words, multiple tentacles and all your tentacles are now complete and you're back at the head of the octopus and each of your tentacles has gone through this process. He says, many souls want to just rest. He says, other than that, that's when the process of considering a reincarnation happens. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. It's radically different. I understand that. And I understand your viewers may, may look at it from that point of view. I felt the same way. And my thoughts about it were this. I'm sitting there and I'm listening to information. I have to sift through what kind of information makes sense to me. Can I draw any kind of conclusion from any of this? Uh, and equally as important is, what am I to do? Am I to, do I believe the messenger or the message or the, or the method by which this is occurring to me? I'm learning all this. You're experiencing this through a proxy. The proxy happens to be Shiletta Nam and, and some spirit named Lat. I have to understand what degree of leap of faith am I going to take with any of this? Well, frankly speaking, that's to a certain degree, no different than sitting in catechism class in second grade, deciding whether I'm going to believe what was in that catechism about, you know, what I was being told. Uh, now, within the, within the, the, the context of all that, uh, I'd be curious what your questions may be because there's any one of a number of ways in which you or I, if we were fortunate enough to be, have our energy field cleansed, decide to, to reincarnate. Throughout all of that, he would drop like little nuggets. It's hard to explain the whole learning experience because it's been 10 years 10 or 11 months a year, three or four hours every, every, every month. He would, he would drop little nuggets about, you know, bud, not everybody returns to the heavy octopus. And I would say, what do you mean? He says, some people uh, find comfort or are unaware of what we're talking about to the extent that the incarnations they have 
never come off a tentacle. In other words, they're looping on an, on an incarnation, after incarnation. Uh, I said, well, how does somebody get off that loop if that does occur? And I said, can you give me three things that I could try to understand that if I'm looping, what I would need to do to kind of break that. He said, the first is to be, have self-esteem, believe in yourself, believe that you have the capacity to learn more than what you need. The second is many people that are looping like that, looping is my word, by the way, looping like that, they need a mentor, some experience with somebody or something that helps them break a cycle of where they are. And he said, the third one is people gravitate more to awareness the more they associate with healers. He said, and healers come in any one of a number of ways. They come in the form of written material, it may be an animal, it may be a person, it may be a particular experience they have. But those three things together seem to formulate enough insight by someone to understand there may be more uh, than what I experienced here. You know, the Buddhists have a phrase that uh, uh, they call uh, uh, stocking wood on the pile, that when you get trapped in terms of believing certain things, if you just kind of keep adding wood onto the fire, onto the fire, new opportunities may eventually appear to yourself, you know? And that it is the ego that we have that really ironically protects us here, right? It's a big part of our self-esteem. It's a big part of our personal growth plans. Um, but yet what Laz is saying is that, but it doesn't work for you in the afterlife in terms of understanding the afterlife. And I, I mentioned in the book that, you know, uh, as a behavioral healthcare clinician, executive, et cetera, um, I tried to imagine what all my colleagues would think if I said that to them, understanding that they're hell bent on, you've got to protect your ego and kind of build it and strengthen it, et cetera, et cetera. It's the key to kind of moving on beyond certain kinds of things. Uh, he says to me, Yes, he said, but here's the dilemma with your profession, bud. And I'll use you as an example, if I may, Jeff. Jeff Mara is, if suppose he's a, a mirror, a circular mirror, that's who you are, right? When people experience the trauma of life, it is as though Jeff has dropped that mirror on the ground and it's broken into a hundred shards of mirror. You can go to the best psychiatric hospitals, best psychiatrists, best clinicians, best medication regime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, what we can do for you is we will, we will glue that mirror back together, right? And we'll give it back to you and say, Jeff, here's what you need to go forward and you're back together now. But when Jeff, when you look at that mirror, you just see a glued piece of mirror, right? You don't see Jeff mirror anymore. You just see the glued piece of mirror. And he says, there's only, I said, well, how do you, how do you overcome that? You know, in terms of becoming more aware of what we need to do in terms of understanding 
self-esteem, mentorship, etc. He says, there's only two keys to any of that. He says, it's the ability to have self-compassion and self-forgiveness that clears your mirror. He says, interestingly enough, but he says in, in afterlife, it is what puts your soul back together as well. He talked a lot about, I know this may get some pushback. He talks a lot about forgiveness, right? Judgment, let's say judgment. And I, I've read a lot of the dogma. I, under, I understand where each of them go. I respect their ability to do that. I respect the people who believe that. And the people that believe that will in fact experience that according to life. Uh, but what he says is this. He says, you're the judge and you always were the judge. You always will be the judge. He says, there is no better person to judge or ability to feel it than you. When you really feel it, the ability to have that high degree of empathy about what you've done, both good and bad, by the way. And he says to me, he, again, he's like my brother, uh, He's more than willing to point out any one of any one of the number of difficulties I've had and in, 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 in my life. He asked me once. He said, "Okay, uh, what's your what's your greatest accomplishment? What do you think your greatest accomplishment is?" I said, uh, well, and "Again, if you're sitting on a couch, right, Jeff, and somebody says, hey, Jeff, what's your greatest accomplishment?'" You go, "Well, wait, let me what 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 you know." Uh, I said, uh, it probably has to do with work. You know, I formed a, a number of companies. I've had people kind of, uh, I, I believe I help people over time. I believe I help institutions over time. He says, oh, that's very interesting. He said, uh, we feel differently about you over here than that. And I said, well what, well, what do you think it is? He says, at the time you stopped that woman on the street because she was weeping and you told her her day was gonna be okay. That meant more than all that other stuff that you did. So it kind of chisels it down to why are you really here? You know, uh, to go on further, I don't know how much time we have, Jeff, but to go on further, when it gets into how you decide to come back, I found it uh, interesting and terrifying all at once. You know, I, I'm okay for a spiritual adventure. It's like I tell Charlotte, she says, well, bud, you know, if, if you really worked at it, you could see him if you want. I said, I don't wanna see anybody. You know, I don't wanna see any spirits. I don't want this. That's your job, Charlotte. You, you're doing this for me. I'm not gonna get involved with it. He said that when you, it comes time to incarnate, I said, how does that actually happen? And he says, it just happens. I said, well, no, I need more detail than that. How do you go about life selection, you know, family, uh, where, where, et cetera, et cetera. He says, it has a lot to do with uh, uh, what you're connected to. And I use some examples in the book. I said, suppose, Laz, I want to be a concert pianist in Norway. And he said, well, is that a desire or is that something that you think you're capable of doing? 
I said, well, I'm just asking a basic question. He said, well, the answer would be, do you play the piano now? Have you ever been to Norway? What is the connection to what you want to aspire to be? And what does that have to do with the plan that you have that kind of like is the blueprint that you're working off of in the head of your octopus? If it relates, then yes. Uh, he gets into how, again, a lot has to do with where your vibration of frequency is and how high it is or low it is or whatever. He said to me one time that people who have a higher frequency when they pass, because this mission basically behind getting together with me, Jeff, is you need to raise your vibration because you've been screwing up so long, you know, kind of just off on your thing. That if you stayed there, bud, you wouldn't be with us in the head anymore. You'd be in somebody else's head. So, uh, so if you if you're going to kind of raise it, say as an example only, and you want to be a I don't know a seven or eight vibration, and he hates scales, but that's me. And he says, so it, you're up in the head of the octopus. You decide I want to incarnate. He says. Because your vibration is so high, it's as though you can map out pretty much what you want, you know, and how you want it, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, what would happen if my, my vibration would be like a three? He said, well, it's kind of, he says, it's not a scale, but your options would be more limited. <clears throat> I said, or as an example, I wouldn't be picking a family. I would kind of just get the next available family. He says, more or less. He said, but don't misunderstand me. Just because you're an eight and you pick a family and you think it's going to be a, a better incarnation for you. He said, there are energies that would in, intervene in a way to make sure that you're not taking the easy road because it's about advancing, right? Uh, and he said that, even if you were, that's no guarantee that your, let's say in this example, your childhood is going to be easy. You may be that pianist, but your parents may not give a shit about you, right? He says, furthermore, and I said, well, don't I know that before I come? Because you tell me that, you know, you understand everything once you're there. He says, yes. And he goes into the amnesia and all that stuff we've read about in other books. He said, but here's the other phenomenon that people don't talk about very often. You pick, you pick or you get to associate with a mother and father. They have their incarnation. They have choices they've made. Those two have people that they associated with. They have incarnations. They have association. They have an on and on. It's kind of like the Russian dolls. It's within and within and within. He said, so even though you have a plan, he said, there are, what did he call them? There are landmines everywhere that are unassociated with the plan that you have. And that one of your major responsibilities in your incarnation is to learn to navigate all of that. It's not linear. It's not like you say, I'm going to be that pianist. I'm going to be in Norway. I'm going to play lovely music with people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, is it, are incarnations progressive? For example, if I was the first mate on a ship, 
would I be the captain next? He said, you could be, or you could be the guy walking the plank, Depend, depending upon what, what kind of experience you needed to have. Uh, he was unrelentless on awareness, vibration and frequency. Uh, he was unwilling really to kind of give on that the way in which you mapped it out is no guarantee of where it's going to be. Let me give you an example. I don't know whether I can do this and make sense of it. He, uh, I, I wish I could play a whole tape for you because it would have an intellectual discussion. It would be homework. I call it homework. There would be examples I would have to navigate through. There would be analogies, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to, uh, I want you to imagine that you have a bee, a poisonous bee in the palm of your hand. And I want you to swat it. I said, okay. He says, what have you done? I said, I, I, I just killed the bee. He says, no, look at it spiritually, but what have you done? I said, okay, uh, have I released its energy? He said, yes. He said, where did your energy go? I said, I, I wouldn't have any idea, but I would presume that it would go wherever B energy goes. He said, exactly. And he said, even as a human, you, your energy is coded to be a human, to be not so much human, Jeff, but to be this, to have a consciousness, to be able to have experiences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I said, well, can that change? He said, it can, it can, but if your energy is coded and that's what it does repeatedly, then that's, it kind of gets like a rhythm to it. He says, it's not unlike a flower that can be, it's coded to be a flower, but it may, every season, it may maybe be a little taller, maybe be a little bit different coloration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they said, why would that occur? Why would there be the variation right, in, in, in incarnation? In other words, why would you have a variation in an incarnation? And he said, this is kind of hard for me to even continue to understand. He says, it's to create the chaos necessary to understand how to grow as a soul, that there is yin and yang to everything. For example, bud, let me use you as an example again, Jeff. Suppose for a moment that you walk into a room and you're sitting, there's a, there's a vision of you sitting in the chair, right? What do you see? Right? Oh, I see, but instead of me, I see a vision of an image of myself. No, look at it through your spiritual eyes. What are you really seeing? And I kind of went through the whole dynamic of that. He says, now, assume for a minute you walk into the same room, understanding who you are as Jeff Moore, and in the chair is a lower version of yourself. Tell me about that version. And I said, well, I think that version is a little less unsteady, unsure of himself, 
you know, maybe uh, has a difficult time articulating himself in such a second. He said, what would he do to counteract that, if at all? And I said, I have no idea. He says, could it, is it possible that he get more regressed? I said, yeah. Is it possible he can get more assertive? I said, I, I would think that's possible. Just now imagine you walk into the same room, you see a higher version of yourself. Tell me about him. Oh, more self-assured, more predictable, et cetera, et cetera. He said, now of those three, the person that you were when you first looked at a room and the lower version, higher version, which one's more at risk here? I took a guess, Jeff. I said, is it me? The, you know, the, that could be you. That says the lower version, he says, no. He says, this is what you understand, bud. You have to see awareness is to look beyond the obvious, beyond the superficial. They're all you. Every one of them is you. If you understood that in each episode of your life, you would have all the answers to everything you've ever wanted. That there is a higher and lower version of yourself depending upon the moment that you're interacting with something. Hmm. This is no different than if somebody walked into Jeff's house and picked up a cushion off the couch and someone said to Jeff, describe that cushion. He said, well, it's a uh, crochet, it's got collars on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said, isn't that interesting? Maybe that, maybe that cushion was picked up by somebody that was brilliant. And part of that energy is still on that, on that cushion. And you have no idea about it. Yeah. Uh, maybe going too far for you tonight, but he was, he, he talked a lot about that. I'm running out of time and I haven't even told anybody where to find your books. <laughs> well, the, the book's on Amazon. It's on Goodreads. It's, I mean, it's, it's out there. It's Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. If they have interest, um, you know, they can contact me at, at bud at budmcgargy.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, I have a website, bud, you know, bud at com. There's all the information about all the books and this book in particular. The hard detail that we talked about tonight, and I know I rambled a little bit for you, but the hard detail of it is kind of within the context of the book itself. There's also, uh, it's an audiobook form as well. And uh, I'm certainly willing to kind of, uh, Jeff, kind of offer that to you or any one of your listeners. We have a limited number of them, but we certainly are going to give them codes to kind of access the book and kind of listen to it as well. Besides being an author, um, do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want us to know about? I didn't want to do one. I didn't want to do the first five, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, yeah, we are writing a sixth book, uh, and it's uh, kind of in the early, maybe third waste stages of it. And it's about the uh, chaotic energy of the soul. It has an awful lot to do with the things we're experiencing right now. And where does that chaos come from? It kind of sets up in afterlife when he talks about chaos, uh, but how it manifests itself and how it manifests itself, not just not just through what we do, but everything that's happening around us and all the elements that are around us. I find it equally as migrating producing as the first five books were, to be honest with you. But yeah, we're going to try it. And I, this will take a little bit longer, I think, to produce because it's uh, far more complex. As complex as what we talked about tonight is, this one's even a little bit more complex. But it is, I want your viewers to understand, it's Although this is out there, I'm not, I never take a position on any of it. 
it is it's information. And whether some whether people kind of dive into pieces of it as I have and negate other pieces, that's terrific. But uh, 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 the, the, the chaotic energy is going to be an interesting travel, I think. Since you have five books, do you need to read them in order or can you read them out of order? No, you can read them out of order. The only thing that happens in order is it started as my journey. I was really kind of journaling about what was going on. So if you read it from the author's journal perspective, you can see my progression from book to book to book to book. Mm -hmm. But each book has its own like centerpiece, right? That you can read without having to wonder about that. Because like, like I started earlier before, it's like it it started really as a journey. I never expected it to end up where it is or to be as in, in depth as it is. Uh, and again, again, it's written with the idea that anybody who chooses to read it or kind of get involved in it to be a co-pilot for me. As a matter of fact, I asked most of my readers, what would you have asked? If you were in that situation, what question? I, I'm not so sure all the questions I had were the right ones or that there could have been better ones. And you'd be surprised what some of the questions I get are. Which of the five books is your favorite? Uh, the last one. The last one. After last. I, I think because it, as an author, it shows more of a progression for me. Mm. Uh, I think the stories within the context of it uh, are more meaningful. As an example, uh, I, I have not had an NDE experience, but as a young grad student, I had the opportunity, I was working at a crisis center, I had the opportunity to work with somebody who had one while they were in the, in the trauma center. And I spent two and a half hours with them in their bedroom talking about their NDE experience. And at the time, I was a young guy. At the time, I just kind of, I didn't blow it off. I took it very seriously. But it's one of those things you kind of log in the back of your head, but it doesn't become in the front lobe again until I came into the afterlife book. I said, oh, yeah, there's that story about Whitney that I had like 35 years ago. And now that makes more sense that I'm doing this. So, yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last positive message that you can share with everybody? I think it's the message that was most striking for me as I as I studied at the monastery. And it didn't, it didn't matter where I turn, everything that I've experienced in relation to this and what happened in the monastery is to learn that we're so much more than we think we are, hmm. far more than what we think we are. It's a matter of whether we're aware enough to really grab a hold of that and understand that. And I agree with that. Yeah, good. All right, bud. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I wish you massive success on this book. Thanks, Jeff. You've been a great, you've been a great host. I appreciate it. And I hope, I hope people get something out of all this. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.